If you go to law school, if you learn nothing else, and, and perhaps I, I learned nothing else than this, <laughs> how, how the world really works, actually. You know, and how power has power, how power maintains power, how power begets power. What's the big obstacles you're facing? Is it lack of racing opportunities? Is it travel restrictions, language, resources? Maybe help the listener understand a little bit the battle you're facing. Yes. Yes <laughs> I like to go back to the world championship. There's a lot of rhetoric about it being a global sport. It's not a global sport. It's not. It is a regional sport. The world championships called world championships, but only three people in the history of the world championships have ever won from outside of Europe. <laughs> and they come from the United States and Canada. So, and that's over a hundred years you know, of history. What are we talking about? There was a great moment of equality there, I have to say. When uh, I think Lachlan told me that Alex House had to buy his like USA kit, then we were all, there was a moment where like, the situation in the US and Uganda was exactly the same. <laughs> Welcome to the Romance Cycling Podcast. My name is Anthony Walsh. Six days a week, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you on your journey towards health, happiness, and longevity. Now let's get into the show. It's episode 581 of the Roadman Cycling Podcast. Today I sit down and chat with Mikel de la Grange from Team Amani. Roadman, welcome back to another Roadman Cycling Podcast. I have a conversation today that I absolutely love. I'm so excited to bring you folks this conversation. It's a conversation with Mikhail Delagrange. He is the founder of a team in Kenya called Team Amani. And if you're on social media, you'll see that this team is blowing up. As Biggie said, they're blowing up like a Toto would. Same number, same hood. They are absolutely killing it on social media, but they have a vision and they have a vision to change the face of cycling. Roger Bannister broke the four minute mile back in whenever he broke it, back in the 50s. And I think journalists at the time arrogantly proclaimed this was maybe the height and the pinnacle of human achievement, of human possibility. We get to look back now on the passage of time and laugh and say the East Africans, you know, jogged to school faster than Roger Bannister ran that mile. Now we're faced exactly with the same situation. We look at Filippo Ganna breaking the arrow record. We look in awe and we wonder, is this the pinnacle of human achievement? But we've yet to see the impact that an entire continent can have on the sport of cycling. Mikel is a passionate advocate for racial equality through sport and he's on a mission to change the face of cycling. I absolutely love this conversation and I hope you guys will too. Time for a little bit of business. Today's show is sponsored by Stages Cycling. Upgrading from a turbo trainer was an absolute game changer for me. No more constantly swapping bikes onto the trainer. Your indoor training setup is just there. It's ready for your session when you are. I remember years ago seeing a clip on YouTube of Floyd Landis and he had a proper indoor training setup. I remember thinking to myself, if I had that, it looks friction free. I'd ride like seven hours a day. Now, I've been using the Stages SB20 smart bike, and I have to say, it's really realistic and it's an immersive cycling experience. You can customize absolutely everything. You can even select the drivetrain to match your outdoor bike. I'm rocking Shimano. It's really comfortable. I've customized the fit to my exact spec out on the road. It has a Stages dual-sided power meter, configurable shifting, sprint buttons. The frame is so stiff and durable. It's rock solid when I'm sprinting. 
I've paired this up with Zwift, but it's compatible with loads of other apps like China Road and Ruby. And a feature I'm loving at the moment is, it's pretty simple, but it has the USB ports in the back so you can charge your phone and iPad as you go. If you want to get your hands on one of these, which I thoroughly recommend, head on over to stagescycling.com and use the checkout code ROADMANSB20 at checkout for an additional 5% off. That's code ROADMANSB20 at checkout for an additional 5% off. I'm going to throw all those details below in today's show notes. Mikael, welcome to the Roadman Cycling Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Anthony. I want to kick off with a question about your background. Like, what do I need to understand about your earliest years to understand the man you are today, with your views, your perspectives, how you see the world? Wow, that's a that's a big question. I'm I don't know. I, I don't want to give a self serving answer. Um, I would just say that maybe from the earliest days, I was someone who was animated by. I just didn't like bullies, let's say that. Um, and, and I suppose this, the idea that someone can get away with using power or privilege or influence to, you know, um, make life harder for others, that's always pissed me off. Um, was that on a micro level, like at the playground, or is that on a macro level with institutions oppressing certain demographics or sexualities or orientations or otherwise? I mean, I think I'd be completely full of shit if I was to tell you that at eight years old, I was already thinking. (laughs) (laughs) So for sure, I think at that stage, it was definitely about the bullies on the playground. But uh, but as I I suppose I I matured, I I could see that that same dynamic was at play in a larger, you know, in a large arenas. It's interesting because we have uh, shared profession, although I don't choose to practice the profession anymore, or maybe the profession doesn't choose to have me involved. I'm not sure which way that one spins, but you're still in it. But it's interesting to hear you say that because when I speak about law to my friends, because a lot of them will say, oh, you had seven years in law school. What a waste. You don't use law. And I was like, well, I do use law, but the reason I got into it still stands. And it's it's quite similar to yours. I I always hated that kid who was picked on in the playground or was picked on by a teacher or was wrongfully accused, but didn't have a voice to speak for themselves. And that's why I got fascinated with law. I was like, it's a voice to help somebody who doesn't necessarily have the tools or skills to stand on their own two feet and help themselves. And it's quite a utopian vision of law, but I think it's why we get hooked on it as kids. There's no doubt about it. And I think also in general, like if you go to law school, if you learn nothing else, and, and perhaps I, I learned nothing else than this, <laughs> how, how the world really works, actually, you know, and how power has power, how power maintains power, how power begets power. Like, that's what you learn in law school. You know, everything else, you know, you just brief yourself for the test and, you know, you get your credentials. <laughs> but you see that this is how our society is oriented. And, um, and, and yeah, if you, if you have an instinct to fight, uh, to fight bullies, you need to know how uh, the system works. Can you remember the first time you experienced or became aware of racial prejudices? I mean... Yeah, I grew up in the United States. It's something that's sort of like they they, they serve it with the with the peanut butter sandwiches there, you know. Um, and I come from a generation that would have been acutely aware of racial divides, where it was something that was talked about a lot, um, but in so doing, 
reinforced, if that makes any sense. You know, yeah. like if you start telling a five-year-old that, you know, racism is a thing and, you know, certain classes within our society have been systematically oppressed, the five-year-old, especially if you come from the dominant group, is just going to go, whoa, well, I guess I got lucky with the genetic lottery here, you know, uh, I'm sitting on top. Uh, and that kind of uh, unconscious, you know, seeding uh, of distinction, I think has been, you know, a particular problem for my generation. Because it's wild how it's initially shaped and formed in kids. Because I grew up in Ireland and we had almost no cultural diversity in Ireland. We were a group of white farmers. And if ever a gene pill needed mixing up, it was our one. But I had no awareness that race was a issue of discussion or it was how we subdivided people. When we had first African-Americans land in Norrell, I was like, this is amazing. Like, these are suntans. This is what I always wanted. It was a suntan. And I'd assumed this was like the ultimate goal to try and sit out in the sun as long as you can until you get bronze like Beyonce. But it's not till you get a little bit older, you realize, okay, hold on. People are being put into categories based on something that's, you know, a sperm lottery and something totally arbitrary. Yeah, I think, I, honestly, I think that you're very privileged to have been raised that way, uh, especially not coming from a society that necessarily has systematically oppressed people of, of that, you know, particular genetic persuasion. Um, and even coming from Ireland, being, a, you know, uh, arguably a class that has been systematically oppressed, you have common cause uh, with, with a lot of these people. So, I mean, yeah, I, I think that's a blessing because if you come at it as an adult, then you can see these things as, as arbitrary as they actually are, rather than having it become part of the way that you see the world. Because ultimately we are very tribal, you know, uh, this is how we see each other. This is how we make snap decisions about each other. And if that becomes part of that quick subconscious analysis, you know, that, okay, uh, people who look like this have these certain traits. It, and it's not something that you think about. It's not something that, you know, is considered. It becomes a, almost a reaction. Uh, and so if you, may, if you come from a society that I think, you know, you got 18 years with, without that being formulating as part of your sort of tribal identity and, and how you see the other and all these other things, then I think as an intellectual uh, and as an adult, then then you can just form opinions and have natural reactions to people who look different than you, you know? Yeah, I also think at some level, there's almost like a, a genetic uh, sympathy or a genetic empathy built into Irish people. Like I'm only, you know, I haven't experienced any bigotry really in my life, thankfully, but I'm only one generation away. Like my elderly uncles who travels to the UK for work, they were still exposed to science in bars that said no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. That's only one, ge it's not even one generation ago. My uncles are still alive that lived yeah. through that. And it's it's wild to think that that was in our lifetime. And it's wilder to think it's still going on. They've just excluded the word Irish from that now. <laughs> I mean, it's wild. It's ridiculous. It's, you know, because it, every every once in a while you think, well, we're in the 21st century. Surely we've <laughs> we've progressed beyond this nonsense. But then it just takes the, that weird comment in a bar and you go, holy shit, we're still there. Yeah, I briefly dated a girl from Dubai and it was really brought home to me the level of racial intolerance still in society. And I was like, whoa, like you read about it, you see it on TV, but when you experience it firsthand, it's just like, oh, wow, I don't even, you can't even engage in arguments. Like there's no talking to someone that has this persuasion. It's a, 
it's just a mic drop moment where you're like, I can't believe this still goes on. I think it's a real art and, and I lack it, to be honest, uh, <laughs> the ability to communicate to stupidity. Uh, and that's that's all I can really say about it. I mean, how, especially for those of us who've been privileged to, to travel the world, the idea that, you, you know, this little pocket in Alabama or in Dubai or wherever it may be, it just somehow like created these, the last word on human beings and then everyone else is somehow inferior. It's just, I mean, it's the height of stupidity and arrogance. So uh, yeah, I don't have much time for it. When did you become involved in Africa and specifically East Africa and the Kenyan region? Yeah, I, uh, for 12 years I worked at the International Criminal Court. Um, and unfortunately, what I was doing was focused on um, a number of East African countries, specifically Kenya. There was some post-election violence there that I worked on uh, for a number of years. Uh, Congo, Sudan, Uganda... Mali, Cote d'Ivoire, a number of different African countries. I also worked in the Republic of Georgia. Um, but yeah, that's how I came to know East Africa. We have these cool inflection points. And I was recently talking to a woman of prominent cycling coaches who's been around cycling you know, since the 50s. And he was talking about inflection points in how we coach athletes. The stopwatch was a huge inflection point for the first time ever it wasn't just a coach who had a stopwatch athletes actually had a stopwatch on their wrists so running splits doing intervals became possible you weren't just going six minutes into an effort going oh that's my 20 minute threshold effort done that was a huge inflection point heart rate monitor was another huge inflection point power meter was another huge inflection point when people think about east african cycling Project Amani is a huge inflection point and i think only the passage of time will maybe tell how big of an inflection point that is but Maybe if you can help us understand what the landscape was like in East Africa pre-Amani project. Look, I mean, there are there have been a lot of very noble projects and teams and initiatives to try to get cycling to kind of off the ground and, and tap into the natural resources that are there with respect to the athletes. I think one thing maybe that hadn't been done before us was to kind of get everyone together Everyone was coming at this in an individual manner. So there were, you know, there's one team in, you know, in particular part of Kenya, there's another team in Rwanda, there's another team in Uganda. Um, they're all kind of trying to get the resources required to take on the world tour straight away, you know, like from zero to 60. Um, and also I think that focus on the world tour was, in our view, perhaps not the most appropriate for the infrastructure that we have in, in these respective countries. Uh, and for the barriers that exist with respect to the world tour, I just don't think. Uh, and because there have been so many projects and so many hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars spent on this focus and failed, um, that we we thought we'd go a different way. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think if if it is indeed an inflection point, and I hope it is, uh, it will be because the trajectory is different. Um, we're not trying to take on the world tour straight away and because we are pooling our resources. And, and that meaning teams from Rwanda, Uganda, Kenya, everybody coming together and trying to do this together. I also think, I'm not sure how much is engineering or how much is just serendipitous, but the landscape of world cycling has changed in the past few years as well. For a young rider trying to make it, the only destination that we classified as making it was the world tour. 
But now there's so many different ways that you can make it. Like by any measurement, you would call what, you know, the likes of Alexi Vermullen is doing over a jukebox, winning some of these big races. And I've talked to Alexi on the podcast and, you know, he's making more cash than he ever made at the World Tour. So, you know, by a monetary lens, he's making it. By a publicity lens, he's making it. By a lifestyle lens and well-being, he's making it. That seems like something where the world is sort of sp- ban and align to your vision a little bit better than I previously had maybe with other projects. Yeah, I mean, speaking of inflection points, I think gravel, the onset of gravel, the, the sort of international appeal of gravel, that is the key inflection point because because of the, the very nature of it, right? The idea that we've all come together. And the reason that I think everyone, it's resonated with so many people is because it's so easy to access. Yeah. And accessibility has been the number one problem for us. Right, like our athletes simply couldn't access that top flight peloton. And if you can't get in that peloton, you will never get to the level where you will be able to compete. It's just like a pace, right? If you're not riding at 55 Ks an hour every day on average, you know, you're never gonna just come from wherever you are and go from 45 to 55. That doesn't work that way. Like it's very clear. Uh, and there's no way to get to that peloton without coming through national systems that are you know, close orientation with the UCI, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which all require a lot of, of money and resources. Then here comes gravel, which takes on this sort of like marathon approach where it's like, eh, you know, the best in the world on the start line, but there's also 10,000 people behind them. Get in where you fit in, you know? And so that's been a big, I think, a big change for us. I totally agree with you. Gravel is such a huge inflection point in cycling as a whole. And I put out a podcast last week, kind of just musing out loud whether UCI involvement in gravel is a good thing. And I know it's a debate that's raged and raged. But for me, one of the beautiful things about gravel is it's inclusionary where road cycling is exclusionary. It encourages different shapes, sizes, no matter what bike you have, no matter what kit you can afford. But then UCI come along with their rule book and they say, okay, now a gravel race has to have this percentage of paved, this percentage of unpaved. This is what you have to wear. You can't use aero bars. You can't use, and it's like, do we need the UCI involvement in something that's blossoming without them? (laughs) It's a very good question. And I've, yeah, I, I have my deep reservations, uh, but at the same time, I can see a value. My, my reservations mainly square on, please don't erect barriers to entry, like you've done with road cycling. If that happens in the gravel scene, then again, we, we have, we've just recreated all the crap we hated in road cycling and brought it over to this nice thing that we had. <laughs> you know? Like, Ian, I was talking like... to Ian Boswell about it the other day, and he's like, why would we voluntarily put ourselves back into chains? You know? Like... <laughs> But at the same time, if you talk to some of the riders who did like the world championships last weekend, a lot of people are buzzing about it because they think it's different than the American scene. It's different than the scene we have in Africa. It's different than a lot of things. So maybe we can have these different, you know, ecosystems as long as this doesn't. And the problem with with the UCI is that because there's so much money there it can then entice or allure all of the talent and, you know, everyone is focused on this. And then by doing so, the rules become more important and then the accessibility declines. That's my only fear. If, if, if it remains open, if it remains the one thing the UCI does that stays open, then it's, I mean, fine, we put a national kit on. I, we can live with that, you know. The idea that they invite the federation's involvement at the national level is problematic for us. 
but not insurmountable. It's just annoying. It seemed like they were inviting the federations on paper, but from what I could see in chatting to, you know, some of the top riders as well, they were like scrambling to buy their own kit to look like they were on federation teams. The federations weren't there. Yeah, there was a great moment of equality there, I have to say. when uh, I think Lachlan told me that Alex Howes had to buy his, like, USA kit. Then we were all, there was a moment where, like, the situation in the U.S. and Uganda was exactly the same. <laughs> so that was nice. But, but it's also a little bit of a slap in the face for sponsors of individual, you know, privateers, for want of a better word, that have backed them all through the year. And all of a sudden, the biggest race of the season with the most TV coverage, they don't get to showcase these sponsors who have helped get them there. Yeah, I, I think there's a point to be made. I'm Look, the, the UCI system this year was a complete disaster, right? Like it was so disorganized. It was all over the place. The summer races didn't even take place. But I think we'd be wrong to suggest that or think that it's going to stay that way. You know, like they will get their shit together at some stage. And, you know, the economics clearly have to work for everybody. Or people aren't going to host these races or they won't have the best races be UCI races. Yeah. So I'm hoping, I'm cautiously optimistic that it will just be another plank uh, that we won't just voluntarily, you know, all just go into chains again and go down the UCI route. I think the American system is so rowdy and you know uh decentralized and beautiful that like it's not going to just conform uh willingly to the uc so as long as that scene stays pure uh and i think there's some cool things happening internationally in europe and you know hopefully also in africa and that's yeah there will always be cool things happening outside this system yeah it's definitely a cool opportunity for change and my uh, fear would be like yours that we just try and take road cycling and specifically men's road cycling and look at that as something that's perfect and doesn't need alteration. Like I spoke with one of our World Tour girls from EF Education last week, and we were talking about the conversation that invariably comes up with the World Tour girls, the disparity between how men and women are treated. I was like, but also let's not assume that the men's is perfect and try and we have an opportunity with female cycling, with gravel, with any minority that isn't the male pro peloton to do it better. Like we don't have to have you know, 15, 20 kids coming into quick step and only one of them makes it and 14 of them are on the scrap heap with no education, no self-worth. We can do better. You know, we don't have to tolerate an output like Bradley Wiggins where he comes through, wins gold medals, Tour de France's, but then he comes out the far side, a broken human who's dysfunctional substance abuse. Like, are we holding that up to be success? And that's what we want for our athletes? Like, by any measure, that doesn't seem successful. Well, imagine if that's the if that's also the model that you're trying to inculcate in the kids in the global south. Yeah, you know, like it's so perverse. And the things that have been tried, you know, people are like, "Well, he's already 16; it's too late." You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, shut the hell up. You know, give me a break. Uh, the, you know, I don't know. So yeah, I I totally agree that we we I I, I just. I'm I'm comfortable now. I think we're not going to just walk back in, slam the cage and, and just be happy with with the system that we had in the past. I think there's a reason why the gravel scene in particular but also mountain biking and other, you know, forms of adventure cycling and all of these things are taking off is because we're tired of these rules and we we're tired of the fact that it's turning these beautiful human beings into, you know, broken shells of their former selves, you know. Um that's not something that anyone wants to aspire to. There's no glory in it. It's not romantic. It's not sexy. It's just silly, you know? 
you ever get frustrated that you can't watch certain live sports events because they aren't televised or available in your country? Or like what happened to me recently when I was bikepacking around Spain. I had to miss out on watching all my favourite shows because I couldn't access the streaming service because they were geo-blocked. Well, I want to introduce you to my solution. It's called NordVPN and it allows me to switch my virtual location to a country that is showing the sports event or show that I want to watch so I don't miss out. Not only that, but in this day and age, I'm getting increasingly more concerned about cybercrime with people stealing my private data and invading my privacy. Luckily, NordVPN is a one-stop shop for all things cybersecurity. It's incredibly easy to use with just one click and protect it. And you don't have to be a tech genius to use it. Honestly, my mom's using it and she can hardly use the remote control sometimes. With my NordVPN account, I can have six devices protected and I no longer have to worry about hackers, malicious sites and pop-ups. It's the price of a cup of coffee every month and it's a small price to pay for premium cybersecurity and access to a vast amount of entertaining content from all over the world. Grab your exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com forward slash roadman. That's nordvpn.com forward slash roadman to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan plus four months for free. And it's completely risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. I'm going to put all the details for this offer into today's show notes. Take a little bit of a U-turn because I'm just I'm fascinated with the Kenyan project. So I want to focus a little bit more on that. I'm sure we could do a 28-episode podcast special on the lack of opportunities and hurdles that you guys are facing to try and get the team off the ground. What's the big obstacles you're facing is it lack of racing opportunities is it travel restrictions language resources maybe help the listener understand a little bit the battle you're facing yes yes to <laughs> <laughs> i mean look i i think number one if, if we're talking about why why aren't there you know african winners of, of the tour de france or, or people competing for the top step i i think the number one reason for that is lack of racing opportunities, and that's that's very clear. And it's not just Africa; it's everyone outside of Europe. the The system is very skewed towards you know uh, Europeans and European champions. Uh, and I think we discussed this in our first chat. But I like to go back to the World Championship. There's a lot of rhetoric about it being a global sport. It's not a global sport. It's not. It is a regional sport. The World Championships called World Championships, but only three people in the history of the World Championships have ever won from outside of Europe. <laughs> and they come from the United States and Canada. So, and that's over 100 years you know, of history. What are we talking about? You know, it is the European Championships, only you get a different jersey. And all of the sport takes place in Europe. There's not a single marquee race outside of Europe. I mean, it's very clear. So if you aren't part of that system, you're never going to penetrate it. And the thing that's so annoying about cycling is that it seems to be content with the status quo. And the conversations that you hear these days where we're like, well, we're really reaching the pinnacle yeah. of human achievement on the bike. You're like, how the fuck can you say that? How can you say that? You know, like, is Roger <laughs> Bannister just reaching the fucking human potential, you know? Like, like it's ridiculous. Uh, and I'm not saying, like, it's nothing against Pogacar or anyone else, you know? Like, they're fantastic athletes and it's, fun to watch and I've been a fan of this sport for 25 years, you know, but uh, you can't lose sight of the fact that nobody else is playing, you know? Yeah, it's a great point. And knowing what we know about East African dominance in other endurance sports, it makes it doubly 
nonsensical to think that these are the greatest athletes in the world at the moment. I mean, this is our appeal, honestly, as a project. It's really a coalition of fans of like, hey, man, like, let's make this sport accessible to the rest of this planet. And then, then let's see what happens. For, well, first of all, from a, like a visual standpoint, from a fan standpoint, it's just more interesting. You know, let's have different stories. You know, let's have different heroes uh, from different places in the world. I had a friend who was dating an Ethiopian girl and another friend of mine was a full-time runner and a marathon runner. And we were talking about marathon times and he's roughly a 217, 218 sort of marathon runner, which is, you know, it's respectable white guy times. And... <laughs> the Ethiopian girl is chatting away to him like, oh, you're a runner, you're a runner. And he's like, yeah. And she's like, oh, what's your PB? And she's like, oh, 217. She's like, oh, oh, my brother's done like a 212. She's like, is he a runner? No, no, he's a postman. It's like, what? I mean, where we're setting up our permanent facility right now in E10 is where Elliot Kipchoge comes from. Right now it's 10. Yeah, so people are probably, there's, there's maybe two or 3,000 people on the road right now running. There are guys who run 205 marathons and nobody will buy them chai or tea, you know? <laughs> like they're just walking around, you know, got nothing to do. Like nobody even cares because 205 and E10 is, you know, uh, is not going to cut it. But at the same time, there are, I mean, the obvious retort will be, but there's more to cycling than just, you know, uh, numbers. And that's true. But power helps, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, and and so and and of course, like the the natural landscape. So where where we are are, are putting our facility in E10, it's at twenty three hundred meters. You know. Also, the Zwift J Vine experience. I had J Vine from Alpeson Koenig. Uh, we done like a year in the life of a Neo Pro last season. And Jay was pretty raw when he came into the sport with big, big numbers. And, you know, we've seen what he done in the Vuelta this year. So the other stuff is learned skill. It's not like football where if you're not playing and, you know, getting 10,000 hours in by the age of nine, it's game over because these basic motor functions are built at such an early age. It's a very yeah. learnable trade. Yeah, So, but, but then here come the other obstacles, right? Like, I mean, I think for an Australian or an American, there are you know, cultural differences and, and a bit of a shock when you come to the to Europe and the Peloton. But, you know, if you speak the language and people look like you and, you know, the food is more or less what you're used to, these are all already kind of like subconscious things that can allow you to just focus on the task at hand. If those things aren't in place, right, so you're around a bunch of people who look different than you, who speak different languages than you, who are eating different food than you, and then, you know, probably have very stupid ideas about you and people like you. <laughs> and, then, and then you get put into these very pressure-packed auditions where it's like, well, we already think you're going to fail. We only think you're here to tick inclusivity boxes. So here's Perry Roubaix. You get in there and see how you go. And if you, and if you don't win, then you reinforce all of our stereotypes about how you didn't belong in the first place. Like, that's the difference between a kid from E10 and a kid from, you know, Nijmegen. You know, where that kid can just keep plugging away and there are no expectations and there's all the resources and all the facilities to, like, let him fail, let him fail, let him fail. But we don't have that with the athletes that, that are coming from our project. We have a really cool idea in our sport and it's this idea of can't see me, can't be me. And Katie Taylor, the Irish female boxer, is one of the ambassadors for it. And the idea being, if there's not a lot of female role models, no one's going to aspire to be a female boxer. Katie Taylor, when she was starting her boxing career, 
girls fighting each other wasn't the thing to do. It was, you know, very unpolite. It was uncivil. So Katie had to dress in drag and pretend she was a guy, shave her head to fight. So she'd turn up to male boxing tournaments and she'd win male boxing tournaments. And then at a point, the organizers are just like, okay, we know this is a girl who's winning all the male boxing tournaments. We have to give her a category to fight in. So Katie created the genre and then dominated the genre. And she's gone on to be multiple world champion and, you know, the biggest female boxing star in the world. But she spearheads this idea of can't see me, can't be me. And I think people like Binny and Germay, it's a can't see me, can't be me moment in cycling because for the first time, we have one of the very, very best riders in the world that doesn't look like me or you. Yeah. Well, first of all, what an awesome story. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah, it's unbelievable. <laughs> um, I mean, I can't agree more. I mean, that's also one of the things we're trying to do is, is to create heroes. The kids need to see that you can make a living riding bikes. Uh, that's so important. We didn't even start a team until I knew we could pay proper salaries because I wanted the guys and girls on our team to build houses riding bikes and that the kids could see that this all happened from cycling. Otherwise, they're not going to do it, right? Like, well, they're not going to stop running because running is the only path from a sporting perspective out of poverty in a lot of the countries that we that we work in. So. If we're going to get those kids to get on bikes, then they have to see that this is actually something that's achievable. With respect to Binyam Gamay, I mean, it's a double-edged sword because, uh, I mean, it's incredible and he's so motivating and it's amazing for everyone. <laughs> At the same time, you can see <laughs> the, the reaction in the European peloton, like, well, job done here, one in a billion, he's in, you know, like uh, it's finished uh, and, and we can't be satisfied with one in a billion. You know, he is an unbelievable athlete and a role model for all of us, everyone in the project. But because one person broke through against all odds doesn't mean that the barriers aren't still there. Uh, and they're very much there and intact, you know. And the thing with the World Tour is it's the 1% of the 1%. I had every opportunity you can a white middle-aged dude could have to make it in cycling. You know, I had access to decent equipment, training roads, knowledge. I could research myself if I couldn't always afford a coach. And I still didn't make it. I got to a point where I could ride my bike full time and at continental level, I'm like, oh, the gap is too much here. But the other obstacles these kids starting on the journey face are like, can I get access to a proper bike to train? Or am I, you know, losing a yeah. hundred watts at threshold before the race even begins? You know, do I have training roads? Like what's that ecosystem like for the kid that's trying to make it? What's the extra obstacles that we mightn't be aware of? I mean, I mean, the thing is, I don't want to have a depressing conversation about <laughs> obstacles because I, no, because I, I will might leave some of your listeners with the impression that this is impossible and it's not. It's doable. We can do it. We can do way better. The thing is like, so for example, just a micro example, last year we had our first migration gravel race. So this race that we hosted a gravel race in Kenya and we had some, you know, big pros come and, and race against our athletes. Uh, but this was before we had the team with all of our, the materials and the big partners that came on board to to really help us take a step up. So People were riding the bikes that they could access and they were using the nutrition that they could afford. And it's incredible, like uh, the difference between last year and this year. Our guys were riding on bikes with tape on it, you know, bikes falling apart during the race. There's a, <laughs> there's a famous quip from Lawrence Tendam, uh, who was, you know, he got in a breakaway with one of our riders, Ken Karaya, and Karaya ran out of nutrition, asked him if he had anything. Tendam 
lies and says he's got nothing and then jokes, <laughs> jokes about it in his documentary about how like, I'm not giving him shit because I want to drop him. Uh, but this is exactly, you know, I mean, imagine if you're doing a hundred and or 200 K bike race uh, and you've got a banana in your pocket, or if you're riding on a bike that, you know, like you're concerned the bottom bracket's going to fall off, you know, this was the situation last year. And then this year, when, you know, we have, you know, Factor, SRAM, Wahoo, you know, uh, Pedalet, all of these, you know, big partners came on board and now our athletes are using the same level of equipment. And then they win both of our races, you know, like uh, against, you know, equal competition. So, yeah. So, I mean, not to say that it was just a material issue, but <laughs> it was a big deal, you know. And is there a knowledge gap as well, or is it just a resources gap? Because I know when, speaking of bananas, when I was starting cycling, I was maybe coming into it at a serious enough level just before, like the internet was there. I don't want to say the internet wasn't there, but there wasn't the big GCNs. There wasn't awareness of what to eat. I remember going training, doing six, seven hour training rides with zero food and zero water. My rationale being when I have food and water at the race at the weekend, it'll be like supercharging me. <laughs> like there was no science in this, but I had an access to, you know, Lancet articles, PubMed. I didn't understand that sports nutrition was a was a thing. Is this knowledge gap hampering them at the moment or is it strictly a resource gap? Well, it's, so, I mean, I would say that, okay, there is a knowledge gap with respect to like the upper echelons of performance. They're not sure. taking ketones. To They're, not. They're not taking <laughs> ketones, but I mean, um, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't go too far with that because I mean, these guys are, they're, they're very professional. They're, you know, they they have access to YouTube. They're Googling everything, you know, they're trying their best. But the thing is, is that if, if you go to the shop and uh, a gel costs three fifty. $3.50. You're going to be very judicious about how you use that job. You know what I mean? Yeah. What's the average weekly wage in Kenya? Kenya is a very, it's a land of distinction. So Nairobi, there may be more, there may be more Range Rovers in Nairobi than Geneva. Uh, yeah. But then you can find places where, you know, life is a lot more simple uh, out in the countryside. So it, it varies quite a bit, but let's just say that $3.50 for a gel uh, is, a, <laughs> is a very big ask for anyone uh, of our athletes. So uh, they'll be thinking about it very carefully about how they use it only for races and, you know, only if it's subsidized and this kind of thing. And then trying to use, you know, products that, are, that they can afford uh, and that they have access to for cycling. So they're trying to take the gel really strategically, like Popeye take the spinach at that ideal moment to yeah. stop. What was that? Popeye is such a weird show to look back on. It's like <laughs> olive oil used to consistently get sexually assaulted, but no one taught anything of this. <laughs> I, I have to confess, I haven't been back to Popeye in about 25 years or 30 years, but um, <laughs> worth checking out. A weird segue. I want to jump into Migration Gravel Race in a second, but I'm just curious before I jump into that. You know, I've been lucky enough with the bike to travel around the world quite a bit, and the admin elements to it is something that we're lucky enough in Ireland as an Irish passport holder. I don't have to deal with too much. Visas, travel restrictions are quite minimal. I can't imagine that's the same scenario for athletes coming from Kenya, especially in the new post-COVID world. Where do I start? So to give you another micro example, um, let's say you want to race in the Lifetime Series and you're not American. Like, let's say Tendam. You know, Tendam can just get up one day and go, oh, you know what, I'm just going to fly to Boulder, Colorado. For our athletes to participate in the U.S. as they did this year, 
it cost me about 20,000 euros for basically one year visa and for four athletes. So, what? I mean, just think about that. So if you're an East African athlete and you want to compete in the gravel scene in the United States, you need 20,000 euros just to get in the door. And that's with lawyer fees. I mean, and you need someone to be able to organize all of this, right? And that, that's just for the visa. And there's no uncertainty. We, it wasn't until the day they got on the plane we were sure they were going to actually get there. Like, it was completely manic the entire time. So think about, you know, when they showed up for SBT, the guys are already emotionally wrecked, you know? They had no idea if it was going to happen or not, you know? And then they're like, they're on this 24-hour flight, and then they're there, so, you know, suddenly, from one day to the next. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the situation, I could give you so many examples of this. It's the number one issue that we're dealing with in general. Like, oh, these great opportunities are being created by a lot of beautiful people, a lot of race organizers and partners and everybody. But the governments, you know, as, as progressive as we want to be in this space, you know, we still live in societies and, and stuff that have, you know, looking at people who are coming from the countries that we operate in as potential migrants, you know, and, and treating them the same way. Uh, so that's, um, that's obviously a huge challenge. Yeah. It's, we definitely have a big problem with people love to virtue signal. They love to talk about how they're so progressive, but it's often, if you watch people's actions, you watch government's actions, we, we're shocking for it in Ireland. We virtue signal about how inclusive we are as a society. And then we have something here called direct provision and direct provision. We've basically created glorified concentration camps for people coming as refugees into the country and are held in these holding camps where they're denied access to basic human rights for long periods of time until their application is assessed and we either deport them or integrate them in to our society. But they could be years in these holding camps in absolutely squalor conditions. But yet media doesn't cover this. We don't talk about it. And, you know, politicians will, you know, they'll wave Ukrainian flags and say we're the most inclusive, welcoming society in the world. Yeah, we are if you have the white skin passport. If you don't have that, you know, we're not that welcoming. Yeah, I mean, look, I I, I can appreciate that maybe um, some of your listeners don't... Uh, are not of the same political persuasion as myself. So I won't go too far down that path, but I agree. But I would suggest also that we're talking about athletes here, not migrants, you know? If, if we can't at least, in the, in the spirit of international competition, create rules, you know, regardless of how you feel about, like, whether people should be able to come and, you know, what a progressive society or a cosmopolitan society looks like, et cetera, let's park that for a second. If you are like the United States, for example, who wants to hold itself out as, you know, this like amazing spot for, you know, in the, in the gravel scene as like the, the mecca of gravel, you have to let everybody else come and play then, you know? <laughs> and I'll say this about Europe. It's a hell of a lot easier for our athletes to come at least uh, and, and compete in Europe than it is in the United States. It's just a, an absolute nightmare. And this is, a, this is a lovely segue to migration gravel race because one of the things I was really drawn to, right, as soon as I heard about the race, I can't remember where I first heard about it. It was probably a YouTube clip. But one of the initial things that struck me is like, oh, that's going to flip it on its head because I went to France as an amateur and I raced over in France. And even with that cultural shift going from Ireland to France, you're like, okay, I'm not on my home turf here anymore. Like these guys don't speak my language. They look a little bit different to me. The food isn't the same. Like I have a lot of extra challenges here. All the challenges the East African athletes have coming to Europe or the US, now the Euro athletes get to experience 
when we go over to Kenya for these races. And that was the genius of it off the bat, I thought, straight away. I mean, and I would be lying if I, if I told you that it, it didn't give me some modicum of pleasure to watch, <laughs> <laughs> to watch people just feel a little bit uncomfortable with the fact that they're, you know, now in a setting that is completely foreign to them, you know? Because I'm hoping um, somewhere deep inside them that, like, that lesson will carry on in their lives, you know? Uh, this is how everybody else feels when they come to our societies, you know? We just take it for granted, you know, because we think that we ourselves are so welcoming, et cetera. It doesn't matter, you know? There is always going to be, whoever you are, some, some butterflies in the stomach when you're around a bunch of people, when you are the minority. And I think once you, when you feel that, and I've, I mean, my whole professional career, I'm working in situations where, yeah, people look different than me, you get used to it. But, you know, uh, but it also, I think, gives you a sense of empathy when you see people looking around nervously like, damn, you know, <laughs> you're like, OK, OK, I get it. I get it. You know, and so we're, we're hoping. But that wasn't the main reason. It wasn't just to make Europeans and Americans. I mean, the, the main reason was, I think, again, racing opportunities. And instead of sending, you know, one or two athletes, you know, this pressure packed audition in Europe that cost a shitload of money, how do we get these racing opportunities for more athletes so that even when they get their wheels blown off, which happens to some, they now know the pace they have to train against. They now see, you know, this is where I need to be, you know, and this is the thing that's been lacking. And it's even the idea of having Ian Boswell, Lawrence Tendam, guys like this who have been, you know, successes in the World Tour. These aren't guys who have washed out of the World Tour. Being around those guys off the bike, watching how they care for their bike, watching, you know, what's the first thing they do when they finish a race? What's their evening routine look like? That stuff, it's it, it's difficult to learn that on a YouTube video because this is just, it's nearly learned by osmosis by being in these environments. Totally. I mean, absolutely. What's the big vision of you, we're sitting down and we're having a beer 12 months from now, 24 months from now, and we're looking at the Amani project and the migration, gra migration gravel race. What kind of has to happen between now and then for you to go, oh man, that was everything I dreamt of happened. So like, it was phenomenal. In a 12 to 24 month timeline, what's realistic? I mean, just to take one step back, I mean, this project has very much been a communal effort. Like, uh, even though I'm the one talking to you, Anthony, um, there are a lot of people behind it. And, and one person in particular who, who won't be talking about it anymore, but was responsible for the genesis, which is Sule Kangani. It was him and I and his ideas and his dream about doing things differently, taking a sort of human-centric approach to Africa, to, to really all, all of these things that we wanted to do and have put into place were things that really came from consultation with everybody. So, um, but in terms of the dream, I, I think the dream is to really give everyone, uh, these athletes from these respective countries, Kenya, Uganda, Rwanda, a fair shake. If it results in the fact that like, okay, you know, with everything being equal, they're good at these things, but not good at these things, then, you know, or, or you know, Slovenians are still the best, at, you know, whatever, that's fine, you know? That's absolutely fine. Um, but I think what would be what would be nice is that we just get to that point where we're like, okay, all of the, our athletes have access to this sport. And I think from a sporting perspective, from, from a cycling perspective, and this is what's exciting, I think, for the rest of us, right? Is that imagine if like it just becomes normalized. 
to see people from these places, like at the start line with you. And I think there's so much to be learned and so much to be enjoyed around the campfire or wherever it may be, you know, uh, when you just, it's not always like the Dutch kid. Uh, it's not always like, you know, the kid from New York or, you know, the kid from, uh, from Sydney. It's like, you know, people from different places who are now for the first time accessing our sport. Well, it was one of my frustrations with the legal profession. When you go into the legal profession, definitely in Ireland, it draws all its opinions from one quite narrow socioeconomic grouping, which there's no problem with that socioeconomic grouping. But when you get to debate anything at a higher level, say policy level, there's only one socioeconomic view point represented in debates the pro peloton is much like that there's many different ethnic and socioeconomic backgrounds that need to be represented not just white middle class dudes from belgium holland france and germany but, uh, but i would also say that even for those groups for those people believe me you stand the game if you let other people in because it gets stale like, it gets boring, you know? Like, and I do think that's why everything else is blossoming around road cycling. It's because we've all come to the same conclusion. Like, there's only so much stem staring I can do, you know, like year in and year out. Like, I want to do something else. And I want to talk about more than just bottom brackets, you know? Like, uh, and so I, that, that's the goal, I think, really, is to mainstream and normalize the participation of the rest of the world in cycling and whatever discipline it may be, whichever discipline with the barriers are, are, are the least strong or the ones we'll knock down first. Um, and then and then hopefully we circle back. That would be ideal. The hour record still looks like it could be out of reach for the moment. Yeah, yeah. But there's, there's the African hour record, which is actually something that Sule had on his radar. Um, so there, there are little things, you know, steps that are, are still exciting and still fun, you know. Um, this is a mammoth project and you know i think the passage of time will determine whether it is one of those big inflection points we talk about in cycling history or whether it's you know more of a regional inflection point but how are you funding this because it's it's a machine to be honest with you the, this is the thing that's very shocking I, I so first of all i haven't given up my day job like you like you pointed out in the beginning uh and i don't work in the cycling industry i don't take a cent from this project and i think maybe because of that I'm able to speak to some of our uh, prospective partners in a way that maybe they're not accustomed to being spoken to because they don't put bread on my table. And a lot of people have come out of the woodwork, uh, some of them from the very beginning, like Pac, for example, like what a company, you know, like these guys are amazing. And they backed our play when we had nothing to show for it. But then others, you know, just like once we get a little bit of momentum and we even try and have a conversation with the steely-eyed capitalists in each of these companies. Like, hey, this is a new market. This is not Live Aid 1980s Africa. <laughs> you know, like, drop that bullshit because this is, looks a lot more like, you know, 80s and 90s South Korea than it does, uh, you know, Ethiopia in the 80s. Um, so, yeah, there, there's a lot of, I think, market potential, a lot of business potential to be had. And, and to have these champions, you know, from three countries under one umbrella go out there and try to, you know, uh, do these things and be seen doing those things for, you know, to build up the amateur ranks and everything else, uh, I think makes business sense, but also like it, it takes a lot of people's social re responsibility re requirements as well. So to answer your question, we just been really lucky also, like uh, the, the people who've come forward to just get it. Um, it is not very difficult and they're giving us the resources, not just for one year, 
um, but for multiple years because they realize that it's not going to be just one PR cycle. You know, we're not going to just like, you know, talk about, you know, Africans today and then, you know, green aliens tomorrow and it's going to just be like this. Um, so, yeah, uh, through 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 corporate financing from, from the cycling industry primarily is how, how we're pulling this off. And just to finish up by seeing, uh, which I hadn't realized last time we chatted, I seen a promotion you have on Facebook with Meta, which yeah. I think Metaverse and cycling is just going to be the wildest. I was out on the bike tour and I was kind of daydreaming about applications for it. I was like thinking, imagine you had this like a set of puck glasses with like a heads up display. And instead of their Strava being, you know, a, a line on the road that you can't see, that it's actually projecting like the Champs-Élysées finish line gantry. And I'm sprinting for this and I'm sprinting against maybe my buddy who lives thousands of miles away for the same sprint. The applications in the metaverse for cycling are, they're mind blown. Yeah. I mean, and yeah, it was a really amazing opportunity that we got. So I got to kind of like go into the belly of the beast a little bit. And I had the same thoughts about it. Like I was like, oh, but imagine like if you could also do instead of like a time trial recon where you actually have to be on the course, you could just like recon it with glasses on. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or any kind of course, you know, that you want to get the descents right and how many turns and how wide they are. Like all of these things could be done in theory. Um so yeah, that was an amazing opportunity that almost nearly didn't happen because uh, I got an email about uh, maybe six, seven months ago where it said something like, we can't tell you who we are or what this is about, but please sign, <laughs> sign this non-disclosure agreement and we'll tell you more full stop. <laughs> but the top of my email was just like, uh, this is likely spam, you know? Uh, I That's the coolest did. email. I want to get that email someday. It was crazy. I was like, I was like, NDA. I haven't, I haven't heard this yet from like the scam artists. So I opened it up. Of course, I'm a lawyer, so it, it was a real one. So I was like, well, let's see where it goes. Um, That's phenomenal. Is there plans to involve Meta into the project more next year? No, uh, it was a, a, a one-time deal. Uh, I don't think you know cycling is not necessarily high on their radar. I think what they what resonated with them was our online campaign. So during the pandemic, it was like right when we started this project, uh, the pandemic hit and we had to quickly pivot. And the idea came to us that, uh, yeah, we would just, instead of trying the money that cost to send athletes to, to races, et cetera, we just took that money for three flights and outfitted three different clubs in three different countries with Wahoo trainers. Um, and then somehow, you know, they're all racing internationally on Zwift, you know, yeah. but not just one or two athletes, but entire clubs of teams. Uh, and so there was a story told about that on Cycling Tips. It somehow got on Meta's radar. And then it kind of their idea about the potential for the metaverse aligned with how we were using technology. And so they, they told the story. But yeah, the cool thing is, is that it, it wasn't necessarily, you know, I know people are skeptical about uh, Meta for obvious reasons. Because they ruin democracy. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not here to defend them. What I what I will say is that um, they did right by our athletes, um, and and that's for sure. And so, for with respect to what I told you before about about them building houses off the back of, of cycling and all of this, and how important that is uh, to be seen to do that for the kids and the next generation, these all are things that came off the back of of that um, of that piece. So that was very important. Mikhail, it's an absolutely unbelievable project and is a fascinating conversation. So thanks very much for joining me on the Roadman Podcast. Anthony, thank you so much for having me. And uh, we, we see you in Kenya next year, right? 100% I'll be in <laughs> Kenya next year. Awesome. <laughs>
Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Have you ever wondered how good you could actually be? Each of us has a unique set of circumstances with work, family and social obligations, but we also want to fulfill our potential in cycling. Okay, okay, maybe you won't ever win the Tour de France, but for most of us, this is what cycling is about. So let us build you the perfect training plan around your lifestyle that's totally unique to you and will help you finally realize your cycling dreams. So whether you're just getting started on the bike or if you're a more seasoned cyclist, we have a suitable coach for you. So why not schedule a call with us and we can have a chat about how we can help you go further than you ever dreamed of in your cycling and fitness goals. Go to roadmancycling.com forward slash contact or pop me an email directly to sarah at roadmancycling.com.